Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. We are going into week six of our study in Roman Catholicism, and today we're going to be talking about the priesthood and the Pope. So before we begin, I wanted to read three portions of Scripture to kind of help frame our mindset as we go into this. Matthew 4, 6 says, And he, being Satan, said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 10 through 15. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows that I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are, in the manner about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. And lastly, James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So let's get into the Catholic leadership structure. What does that look like? So in the official Catholic rules, if you wanted to become a pope, there are only two official requirements. One is you have to be a man, you have to be male, and you have to be a Catholic. However, having a random churchgoer becoming pope has essentially never happened. In contrast, you have a Baptist church, like what I come from, that consists of only members and pastors. But the Catholic Church uses a system similar to a corporate ladder. So if you wanted to become a member of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, the first thing you would need to do is become a priest. The Church's recommended requirements are to currently serve in the Catholic Church, and have either a bachelor's in Catholic philosophy or a master's of divinity. If you meet these requirements, then you can be ordained, and you can either run your own church or you can work alongside another priest. Currently, there's about 400,000 priests in the Catholic faith. The next step up would be to become a bishop. The recommended requirements are that you are at least 35 years old, you have a PhD in theology, and you have been a priest for at least five years. Currently, there's about 5,000 bishops worldwide. This position allows you to control a cathedral and other small churches in an assigned area. Among the church leadership, there is a secret list kept of potential successors in the case that a bishop either dies or is forced to retire at the age of 75. This list is given to someone 
named an apostolic nuncio, which is kind of like a church ambassador for a specific country. And they do all the research for each candidate, and they conduct interviews in order to determine who the best person would be for being promoted to bishop. The top three candidates are given to the Pope and his magisterium, and then they review it, and they either approve or veto the application. This process sometimes can take either months or as much as years. The final step is to become a cardinal. To become a cardinal, the Pope has to personally select you. Although it may seem like they oversee other bishops, they actually are just bishops themselves, but they are given red apparel, and they just have a few additional responsibilities. There's currently about 200 cardinals in active office, and their primary role is to select a new pope from among themselves when the office is vacant. At that time, they will sequester themselves. They'll go into an isolated area where they cannot be contacted by any means. They will deliberate for a long time, sometimes even years, and whoever has the two-thirds majority vote is made into the new pope. Once he's elected, he is chosen a new name, and he chooses one for himself, and there is no official rule about how to do this, so they can technically name themselves whatever they want, but they traditionally name themselves after a previous pope. The current pope, Pope Francis, he's the first Francis to ever be a pope, though. So, it begs the question, what is a pope? So, they use the scriptures in order to justify the pope's position, and the scripture they use is Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 through 19, which says this, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Additionally, the church catechism states this in paragraphs 881 and 882. The Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter, the rock of his church. He gave him the key of his church and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock. The office of binding and loosing, which was given to Peter, was also assigned to the College of Apostles united to its head. This pastoral office of Peter and the other disciples belongs to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. The Pope, Bishop of Rome, and Peter's successor is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Now, the scripture we just read is the Catholic foundation for the office of the Pope, which the Pope is 
basically means father. The Catholic Church firmly believes that this showed the Apostle Peter to be chosen as the first pope, giving him authority as the leader of the other apostles. Catholic tradition also states that sometime after the book of Acts, Peter went to Rome and became the first bishop at Rome. Since he was chosen by Jesus as the rock of the church, Peter's authority became the central focal point for all of Christendom. When his time in office was over, Peter passed down his apostolic authority and wisdom to the next bishop, which is where the church's doctrine of apostolic succession originates from. Therefore, all bishops appointed to the office of Pope carry the authority of St. Peter, who was the founder and authority of Christ's church. Now, in the scripture it said, Jesus told him that he was going to give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The Catholic Church understands this to mean that Peter was granted authority over the apostles, and as Christ's vicar, or representative after his ascension, his words became infallible, without error. Therefore, when any pope speaks ex cathedra, which is Latin for from the seat, they are claiming the authority of St. Peter as the vicar of Christ, and their word is perfect, as if Jesus himself made the proclamation. This is why the Pope has the power to define, modify, add, subtract, or interpret scripture and church tradition, since they are equal after all. If you haven't noticed by now, the office of Pope is a terribly powerful position. He alone controls the church's doctrine. He governs a small country, and he has deep political and diplomatic influence. The Holy See is constantly involved in global affairs and is highly regarded throughout the world's governments, giving this position power within nations they have no direct control over. When it comes to land, military, and resources, the Vatican just cannot compete. However, being the head of 1.3 billion people integrated into almost all the countries of the world, this allows the Pope a more unique position of authority and power, one that he should not have. So now we've discussed the Pope, let's talk about the magisterium. So let's look at a few pieces of scripture before we do. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. But since we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That key point to note there, adulterating the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 1 John 2.27 As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. 
but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has been taught to you, you abide in him. Paragraph 100 of the Catechism says, The task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with him. Now, in previous weeks, we talked about how tradition is weighed equally with Scripture in the Catholic Church. The magisterium, which is the council of the most prestigious bishops chosen by the Pope, is responsible for the dispensation of truth from what's called the sacred deposit of faith. Essentially, they are the only ones who can interpret and understand God's word properly. They teach both tradition and scripture. If we want to put this more simply, only an expert in the word of God can correctly interpret scripture. That is why, for a vast majority of Catholic history, their believers were not allowed to have a Bible of their own. And it was forbidden to translate the Bible into any other language other than Latin. After all, a simple mind cannot correctly understand God's word, right? It may sound bizarre, but the Council of Trent even placed the Bible on a list of books you are not allowed to read without some sort of permission or license from a Catholic bishop. The Bible of all things. And this is quoting from the Council of Trent. If anyone shall dare to read or keep in his possession that book, being the Bible, without such a license, he shall not receive absolution till he has given it up to his ordinary. Do you know what he's saying? Simply put, none of your sins will ever be forgiven until you have surrendered your Bible over to the church. While it is good that this is no longer a practice of the Catholic Church, the latter half of this argument, that only those chosen by God can understand and interpret Scripture, is very much alive and well today. And even then, that contradicts itself, because they still affirm everything that the Council of Trent said. So, go figure that one. The Church may justify what it did in medieval times, claiming that this was all done to preserve the uniformity of church teaching and protect the mostly illiterate people of the day. But we must know, as true believers, that the Bible is clear about how it can teach itself by enlightenment through the Holy Spirit, who is the only teacher. If God is the author of the Bible, and his thoughts are beyond our thoughts, no man can understand his message without his direct involvement, no matter how educated you may be. Let's talk about priests. What is the function of a priest? Are they the same as pastors? Luke chapter 22, verse 19. And when he has taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus personally created the office of priest through a false understanding of this verse. Paragraph 1488 of the Catechism says, 
The primary ministry of a priest is to consecrate and offer the Holy Eucharist and to forgive sins. In this, priests differ from deacons who do not receive the power to consecrate the Eucharist, offer Mass, or forgive sins by sacramental absolution. If we follow the logical flow of what a priest's responsibilities are before God, then we can easily say that they are intended to be mediators between God and man. Did we not just talk about this? Didn't we see in the scriptures that there is only one mediator? Is this a biblical contradiction in Hebrews chapter 7 and chapter 10? Or is this an invention of man? Let's break down what their responsibilities are. So for the first thing they're supposed to do is consecrate the Eucharist. Since the church believes that the apostles were ordained by Jesus as priests, his instructions to them at the Last Supper, you know, the breaking of the bread, the drinking of the cup, this gives them the authority to proclaim the consecration of the Eucharist and the power to cause transubstantiation. We're going to come back to that in the future weeks, but the understanding of transubstantiation is that when they offer the wafer and you consume the wafer, it becomes the literal body of Christ in your system, that you're literally eating a piece of God. So today, when ordained as a priest, the inherited authority of the apostles are received. That's another form of apostolic succession. The right to be able to do these things is passed down by the apostles. Second thing they're supposed to do is offer Mass. The most significant aspect to remember on this one is that the church authoritatively speaks that this is not a symbolic act or ritual. The church firmly believes that they are continuing the actual sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This is based off the Catholic understanding of Hebrews 13.8, in that what Jesus did in the past is a present event to God, since God exists outside of time. Let me read it to you very briefly. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So from that, they say that the Mass is necessary. Since God exists outside of time, the offer of Jesus on the cross is represented to him in order to achieve a closer communion with him and a deeper understanding of the significance of the cross. While Protestants and Catholics would both agree that the cross is the focal point of the Bible and what he did on it, the means that it is understood and celebrated are very different. And the last thing that a priest can do is forgive sins. The priest is granted the authority to judge, absolve, and forgive sins through confession and penance. This is yet again a product of poorly understood passages of the New Testament, whether intentionally or not. The error of the Catholic Church is the same as the error of modern Jews in some respect. Namely, the idea of a sacrificial system offered by a priest for the forgiveness of sins. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is our high priest forever, and we now have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit 
within all true believers. Because of that, the office of priest has been abolished, and it is no longer necessary. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5-9 through nine. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The Catholics believe that this teaches us that all believers are part of the godly priesthood, but this is nothing like what the Church canonized. So, this is the Catholic stance on the Pope, the priesthood, and everything in, in between. So, does the Bible agree with this? So, let me speak to you some biblical truths that we have to understand that are in contrast to what the Catholics believe. Truth number one, Peter was not infallible. In fact, the Bible records specific times that he made mistakes after Pentecost, and he was rebuked by Paul. Matthew 16, verses 22 through 23. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And bear in mind, this was after Jesus declared that he was Peter and, quote-unquote, made him the first pope. Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter was in error, and he was called out for it. He was not infallible. He was a man just like us. Truth number two. Jesus Christ is the only mediator given to man. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But now he has obtained a much more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Christ is the only mediator. We don't need priests. We need teachers, and we need shepherds, pastors, but we don't need priests, especially with the authority and tasks that they are given to do. They are not necessary. Truth number three. Jesus Christ is the only head of the universal church. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope. Colossians 1.18 He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Again, no notation here of any Pope. Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. 
for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Truth number four. The old system of sacrifices and priesthood was abolished by Christ. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. When he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 16. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must be of necessity the death of the one who made it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 10. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which he offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Truth number five, only God can forgive sins. Not only because he's the one that we are offending, but because it's his standards. Isaiah chapter 55, verse seven. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Psalm chapter 51. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it is a very good one to go through. Verse 4 especially. Against you, you only, I have sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. But again, I recommend reading the whole thing. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity, and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Not the priest, but God. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The fact that priests tell you to say so many Hail Marys and so many rosaries, etc., it's all ritual, empty, empty ritual. None of those sacrifices or traditions are going to take away sins. It is all done by the grace of God. The next truth. No words or rituals can forgive sins. Forgiveness requires repentance. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And yet He still wants us to ask. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. If you don't forgive other people, God won't forgive you. That's a serious thing we have to keep in mind. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come 
from the presence of the Lord. This is all in their Bible too. The next truth. No one has the authority to change the gospel or scripture. I don't care who it is. Nobody has the authority to change anything that the Bible says. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21 through 21. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The magisterium will claim that they're speaking from God, but is that true? The Bible says it's not. Because this is the next truth. False religions and false teachers are always among us. Always compare their words and their actions with Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Matthew chapter 24, verses 23 through 25. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, even possible, the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance.
2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. That's a very bold statement, but it is true. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 7. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a mean of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3 through three. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I personally believe that this is directly speaking to Roman Catholicism. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-3 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Jude, verses 17 and 18. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. But these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. And the last truth that I want to leave with you today is that no one needs to teach you the Bible in order to be an effective Christian. While it's helpful to learn deeper theology from people who have already learned it, don't forget the one most important thing of all. 
The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. Jesus Christ wrote the book, and he is the Word of God. So therefore, if the Holy Spirit is indwelt in you, he is the teacher. Every other teacher is a guide to the master teacher. The Holy Spirit can teach himself, and this is biblical. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Amen and amen. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And lastly, 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. And this concludes this week's study of Roman Catholicism, about the priesthood and the Pope. Next week we will complete the next section, which will be an in-depth look at the seven sacraments. Are they necessary? or are they not? Thank you for your time. I hope this was helpful to you. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.